All right, I hope you have your Bibles open. We're in a series in Jude, and uh, the series is Contending for Our Faith. And as Pastor Matthew introduced a moment ago, we're going to be talking about a pretty serious topic that's in our country right now. And I want to uh, be able to do this. I've been excited about speaking, actually, on this issue Except I've been waiting for one of my series that I've been in to naturally come to it. I didn't want to force it. I didn't want to deviate to just come to this issue of, of sexual immorality or homosexuality. I just wanted it to come straight out of the Word of God as I've been preaching expositionally. And we finally are there. So we're going to take today, we're going to take next week as well. We're going to slow down a little bit. And we're going to take a look at this. And let me let me recap. Now let me let me just ask you a question. How many of you, you be honest, raise your hand if you could do this, can remember what you ate Thursday morning for breakfast? Honestly, raise your hand. How many of you cannot remember? All right, a lot of your hands. Now listen, I I can't you can't remember what you ate a few days ago for breakfast? You're likely not remembering what I preached two weeks ago. This is the preacher's curse. If you miss a weekend, it's ancient history. So I'm just going to do about a three-minute recap for you on what we dealt with two weeks ago. And what we're finding in Jude is that for Jude, false teachers had found their way into the church. Now I want you to look at me for a minute. Let's all of you look at me for just a minute. It's always been the problem throughout church history that false teachers find their way into the church. This is one of the reasons that James says, let not many of you become teachers. There's a rigorous screening. There ought to be a rigorous screening before somebody gets the platform to teach and preach in a church. But they've always found their way into a church and their aim is always the same. Now, you ready? Are you listening? Here's their aim. It's to destroy the faith. What is the faith? It's the body of knowledge of God's redemptive plan to save sinners like me. Are you ready? Two more words like you. That's the faith. The faith is God's plan to save sinners. All the way from Genesis 1, all the way to the end of Revelation. It's one story. Have you ever looked at the Bible as just being one story rather than 66 disconnected books? It's just one story. And it's all about how we have fallen into sin. Everyone, everyone has fallen short of the glory of God and sinned. But God has a plan, and God is recovering, God is redeeming, God is restoring, and we, Christian brother and sister, we get to be part of that. We get to be part of what God is doing to restore the world to Him. So Jude is challenging Christians, look at verse 2, who are the called, the beloved, and kept, the beloved in God, and kept for Jesus Christ. He's calling Christian people to get in the ring, and to fight for the faith and govern yourselves by love and arm yourselves with knowledge, but you've got to get in the ring and you've got to fight. And his tone is blistering. Now, some of you, I've had, I had an email a while ago, a very, very good email, challenging, questioning my tone in this series. And I think it was a fantastic email. 
And it gave me an opportunity to be able to explain, listen, when you preach the word of God, part of the job of a preacher is to preach the tone that the biblical writer is writing. And Jude, as we work through this, he's going to get more and more serious. Right now, he's already blistering. He's not sparing mercy for those who've set themselves up against God. And that attitude emerges, and it emerged two weeks ago. Now we're looking back in two examples that he gave from the Old Testament, verse 5 and verse 6. Here's the first one, verse 5. They were the unbelieving Jews who did not trust that God could actually settle them into the promised land. And the second one were the angels who did not like the authority, the place that God had assigned to them. And they came out of that authority, they came out of that place, and they committed sexual immorality. Verse 7, likewise, makes it clear that whatever the the angels did in verse 6, it was a sexual immorality in nature. See, the first group, the unbelieving Jews, Jude said they were destroyed by God in the desert. The second group are locked into chains awaiting judgment. So we've got two examples from Jude about a condemnation that awaits those who are false teachers in the church. Now listen, that's serious. That makes me sober-minded to make sure that I am preaching the word of God and that people are holding me accountable. Today and next week, we're going to look at the third example, verse 7. Here it is, ready? Just as Sodom, let's look at it together, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Here's the issue. The issue, he plainly says it, was sexual immorality. Now listen, sexual immorality is a really wide title. Pornography addiction, adultery, incest, bestiality, rape, homosexuality, all of those fit underneath The title, sexual immorality. Jude's saying the problem was sexual immorality, but here's the specific application of the people that Jude's talking about. While it was an umbrella of sexual immorality, the specific issue is homosexuality. So let me ask you a question, and this is to get you thinking. What is your belief on homosexuality? I want you to think through that for a minute. Don't be afraid of that. Regardless of where you are on that position, I want you to think through, grab hold of that in your mind, hold it. And let's talk through that a little bit. Let's use the Word of God. Because increasingly, young people in the church, listen, I'm hearing it all the time, young people, your young people, are not bothered by homosexuality. They see nothing wrong with it. That's the prevailing mindset in the younger generation today. There's nothing wrong with it. People are born gay, they're believing. And that God not only loves and affirms them, He blesses gay people. Now listen, that's the prevailing mindset, emergingly stronger in and out of the church. And the gay movement today is experiencing a momentum 
that it has never, ever seen before in this country. In fact, this coming Monday, two days from today, New Jersey will make the 14th state in America that allows same-sex marriages. And if you if you pay attention to polls, one Gallup poll says that the perception, now listen, this might be yours, the perception in America is that one quarter of the population of the United States is gay. That's the perception according to a one Gallup poll. Here's the actual poll results of how many gay people there are in the United States. You ready? It ranges poll after poll, 1 to 3.5%. Rather, just under 1 to 3.5%. There's an extremely well-funded gay agenda. And it is... act. Listen, they're so good. Do you know that you can almost not even find one television show that doesn't have a gay character? They are streaming their agenda into movies, into TV, into books. And the battle, listen, it's not just raging against the church. This is really where I want to go. What I'm doing is strengthening the church. How do we view homosexuality? The battle's not just raging against the walls of the church. It's now come inside the church. And it's inside Christian colleges. And it's coming out of lecterns and pulpits. Gay-affirming messages and denominations are hiring gay clergy, and they're blessing gay couples. In fact, listen, you've heard of Tim and Tammy Faye, or Jim and Tammy Faye Baker, right? Well, they have a son, Jay Baker, who's a preacher. I want you to hear this video from Jay. Just recently, I had a pastor tell me that he felt that God was against me and that Jesus was against me. He forgot the Holy Spirit, so that's cool. I'm good with him. And that my whole ministry was going to disintegrate and dissolve and be destroyed. Well, and, and the reason is, is because I, I, I came out in the church recently and said, you know what? I don't, I'm pro-gay marriage. I don't believe that that's a sin. <laughs> yeah, I got dang quiet. Everybody's like, I ain't saying no now. I guess we're not ready for this yet, are we? It, it, it's hard for me when people who've been through such persecution and, and been judged against, all of a sudden, they don't want freedom for anybody else. Did you know that you can uh, get onto Amazon? And order the new Queen James Bible. It's a Bible now that has taken the passages that deal with homosexuality and they've reinterpreted them. I'd invite you to get on their website. They have an explanation of how they've reinterpreted it and why. Then you've got Brian McLaren, who is the father of the emergent church movement. There, it's a, it's a stream within the evangelical church. And McLaren just recently led a commitment ceremony for his son who married his male partner. This is Brian McLaren, hugely influential, the father of this massive and growing movement. 
And you might have heard of the evangelical seminary called Fuller Seminary, which now has a student group for gay and straight students called One Table. It's a place for homosexual or heterosexual people to come and and to gather together and to talk and to deal with these issues. So what do you what do you do with the topic of homosexuality? How do you think biblically on this massive and growing subject? You know, Denise and I have a nephew who several years ago came to his parents with the news that he was gay. He left the church and today he continues to insist that he is a Christian and that he's gay. Not long afterwards of coming out to his parents, he shared that he had been molested by another boy when he was in sixth grade. I mean, this is a painful, painful situation devastatingly painful, continues to be painful. So the issue hits close to home for me. And I want to deal with this in a way that is incredibly gracious and incredibly honest. And let me start with this. Now, you ready? Now, listen, let me, let me just assume, let me just assume there might be somebody here who is gay, who has homosexual desires. This week and next week, I'm going to and just encourage you, this is going to be hard probably to hear, but I hope you sense my heart in this. I think you're going to. But try to listen and try to bring the Word of God over you and willingly come under it. But listen, that would be the minority of those who are here. Let me tell you, let me speak to those who, he, who are here who are not gay. How do you view gay people? Be honest. What do you think of them? And as you begin to come alongside of a gay person, if God were to privilege you with that opportunity, what would you say? Would you start out by saying, and this is a truism, this is true, that there's not one single incident in the Bible, not one passage or verse that puts homosexuality in a positive light. Is that how you would begin? As true as that is, is that how you would talk to your gay friend? Or would you say even that maybe liberal scholars, those who are reinterpreting the Bible are trying to reinterpret the scriptures and that they've taken these passages and they put a spin on them that has to go wildly way away from the original meaning and then get back with a new view on it. So listen, our rule for life in all things, ready? This is why you're part of an evangelical free church. This is what our forefathers proclaimed. Where stands it written? In other words, here's the Bible. It's over us. We're under it. There is nobody, Pastor Tim, nobody over the Word of God. The Word of God is over us. So what the Word of God says on this massive issue of homosexuality, then that's the truth. So today I want to share two thoughts that will introduce next week's deeper look. Now you hear that? Now everybody look at me. I want to share two thoughts with you today. They're going to introduce, get us going for next week. We're going to take a much deeper look 
into this area next week. Here's thought number one. You ready? Now you got to hear this. I really need you to, to listen. We demonstrate the gospel. Number one, we demonstrate the gospel when we love without categorizing people. Now you hear that. When we love without putting people into categories, we are demonstrating the gospel. It's amazing. It's amazing how Jesus viewed those with leprosy, those who were caught in adultery, those who were tax collectors, those who were drunkards, those who were women, Samaritans, Gentiles, all of these people, Jesus saw them. He loved them. He did not put them into various categories. He had compassion on them. It's the religious elite. It's the Christian, if I can use that, who tends to put people into categories and then judgmentally withhold love and mercy. Now, I want you to recall that Jesus gave a parable in Luke 18. Here's what he said. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's probably pointing as his prideful prayers are ascending to heaven. Listen, they put people into categories. Jesus resisted it. The Pharisees and the scribes said this, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Listen, Jesus didn't categorize all of the people into various little pockets. He reduced everybody to two pockets. They're either righteous or they're sinners. Now listen, you ought to be now coming into some arguing in your mind. Is that how you view people? Is that how I view people? Even gay people or drunkards or rapists or people who commit sin of the most vile manner. How do we view them? Do we put them in a category? Or do we see them as people who have received mercy or who are in need of receiving mercy? Because that's Jesus and that's the gospel. See, there's this tendency to categorize people based on behavior, based on position or race. But Jesus sees people in need of mercy, forgiveness, and salvation. You know, he wasn't repulsed by sin. You know what turned the stomach of Jesus? Are you listening? It was self-righteousness. It wasn't sin... Because the only thing that sin did with Jesus when it was actively in people was pull out mercy. But what pulled out his scathing reports was self-righteous people. This is the lens. This is the lens through which a Christian should view a homeless person, a prostitute, a millionaire, a gay person, a gay man or a gay woman. That's the lens. If you want to be like Jesus, you bring into your view every single person that comes into your life. They're either having received mercy or they're in need of mercy. So let's think through this for just a moment. Do you place people, do you place people in categories because of their sin? Do you? 
How about liars and thieves and alcoholics and addicts and dropouts? Or because of our subject this week and next, how about openly gay people? What goes through your heart when you meet somebody that is gay? Do you put that person in the category of the worst sinner? You're lifting homosexuality out from the other sins and you're saying that's the big one and that person, I can't love them. I need to distance from them and I can judge them. Listen, there's a sector of the church that seems to have perfected hatred toward gay people. We don't want to be like that, but here's an example of it. God's gonna stand there and watch you burn But that's alright because you wouldn't heed his word He's gonna stand there, won't hear you cry But that's alright because you love and make a lie You love and make a lie I can't tell you how your heart is I can only tell you what it looks like And right now there's no fruit Life, life will run ripe You won't hear but you still fight What you can't fight As long as the wrong feels right It's like you're in flight High off the lust, drunk from the hate Your mind is reprobating Your lovers won't think you suffer You're fornicate And right before you're about to drown Try to educate you Cause we don't hate you But you hate it, wait Where you going? Ain't hearing you you ain't drink this, your heart is so black Read my sign again, you're so insane You think it's doing good, it's doing great God must love you, cause he made you this way You're unashamed, wake up, it's bad It's awful, you should be ashamed Then smack, what's happening? Didn't fear his holy name You're in his hands now, you'll never have a chance again I guess you don't have your own strength God's gonna stand there and watch you burn That's alright, because you wouldn't heed his word He's gonna stand there while hear you cry That's alright because you love and make a lie Love and make a lie So that's the Westboro Baptist Church. They are as far as you can get from the true church. I mean, wearing a t-shirt, God hates fags, and wearing placards over their heads and telling them God's going to stand there with a smile on their faces and watch you burn. That is sick. And when you get back to Jude, Jude starts to speak to this incident that happens. And I want you to see how Abraham handled this. Because when you go back to Genesis chapter 18, where the incident did take place, Abraham hears of the plan of God to go down to the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and eventually destroy them. And Abraham begins to plead with the angels. He begins to plead God. He gets all the way down that even if there's five righteous people in Sodom, would you spare them? Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Listen, in the New Testament, you've seen it. The words were righteous and sinners. In the Old Testament, the categories were reduced to two. Righteous and wicked. Same thing. And Sodom was a terrible city of terrible sinners in need of an incredible mercy. And Abraham knew that, which is why he pleads to God on behalf of Sodom. He prays for Sodom that God would spare them. 
Listen, as you step into the ring and contend for the faith, as Jude in verse 3 is moving us to do, listen, you're going to face the onslaught of sexual purity and specifically homosexuality. And when you do, do you have a genuine heart that cries out to God that he would save sinners regardless of their sin? Or do you or do I have a greater hatred for sin in our own lives than in others? Listen, do you? Do you hate the sin in your life more than you hate the sin in others? Listen, if you hate the sin in others more than you hate the sin in your life, you're going to be self-righteous. See, these are hard questions. And honestly, we've got to be confronted with them because I don't really think our church would do really, really well if a group of gay men and women sat down next to you. Can a homosexual person come to this church and find us to be a people who absolutely love them? But how do you love somebody who's a homosexual? Let's get to point number two. You demonstrate the gospel when you love without categorizing people. But point number two is you demonstrate the gospel when you tell gay people biblical truth. I want you to hear this from Rob Bell, probably the most notable emergent church leader. And now his new position on homosexuality. What we're seeing right now in this day, I believe God pulling us ahead into greater and greater affirmation and acceptance of our gay brothers and sisters and pastors and friends and neighbors and co-workers. And we're realizing that God made some of us one way and some of us another. And it can be a beautiful thing. And so instead of throwing stones and causing more pain and suffering in the world by excluding some and writing off others and speaking incredibly unkindly about some, we embrace that we're all on a journey and all of us together, whatever our particular perspective is, let's work together on the real problems we have ahead of us. So if I were to ask Rob Bell, Rob, what do you believe is the biblical position on homosexuality? Here's what he would have just answered. He just did. He said, number one, people are born gay or born straight. It's a genetic issue. And he also would have said it's not that big of an issue. Let's get on to things more important than this one. He's got an opinion. What do you, what do you think that the Bible says, friends, about homosexuality? Listen, if you take that Queen James Bible, if you get on it tonight and you, you get later tonight and you get on there and you check it, you start reading up on it, here's what you're going to read is that the Bible says nothing about homosexuality. That's what they're going to write on that. And that homophobic, homophobic people twist it to think that it does. Now, right, you're, you're familiar probably if you've ever talked to somebody about homosexuality with a biblical perspective, then you've more than likely been called homophobic. It's the number one response towards Christians, fear of homophobia or homosexuality. And the argument goes that Jesus never condemned it. Now listen, the argument goes Jesus never condemned it in the Gospels. But listen, if you join a debate team in your high school or your college, you're going to learn that arguments from silence are some of the worst arguments. They're utterly unconvincing. 
And there's a lot of things that Jesus didn't speak. And now listen, I'm giving you some ways to speak to people about this issue of homosexuality biblically. So here we go. You ready? There's there's other things. There's a lot of things that Jesus didn't speak on. You ready? Here's a few. He didn't speak on rape. He didn't speak on incest or bestiality. And that doesn't mean that any of those are permissible or pleasing to God. So if you've got somebody that tells you that, you know what, Jesus never spoke on homosexuality. If it was a really big deal, he would have. Well, you could have said, you could say back to them gently, lovingly, do you think it's wrong to have sex with animals? Let me prepare you for that answer. There is a growing movement that says it's not. Or do you think it's wrong to rape somebody? Not too many people think that's right. Well, Jesus didn't speak on that either. On the contrary, what Jesus did was affirm more than once the marriage was to be between a man and a woman and that it's only alternative, Matthew 19, verse 12, it's only alternative is celibacy. See, Jesus was sent to Israel. Listen, friends, Israel didn't have a cultural problem with homosexuality. It was almost non-existent. He was sent to Israel. He's speaking to Jews. But you want to get to Paul's writing, who was sent by God to the Romans. And then all of a sudden you begin to see and you begin to hear the biblical response to homosexuality. Paul was steeped in the knowledge of Roman Greco culture. That means the Greek culture spreading in Rome. He was steeped in the knowledge of that. He knew it inside and out. And in that culture, now listen, let me give you some background of what homosexuality looked like in the Greek and Roman culture. They Men were commonly bisexual, men or women. They married wives so that they could have children, but they often had a man or men on the side. And they had a horrible use of male prostitutes and young boys. And homosexuality with young boys from an adult man was commonly accepted in Rome. In fact, listen, Socrates, you've heard of Socrates. He was a, he was a fully immersed individual in homosexuality. Plato, he penned an entire section in his famous symposium exalting homosexual love. You know of Alexander the Great. He supposedly had male and female lovers. Some historians say that 14 out of 15 Caesars, Roman emperors, were engaged in homosexual behavior. You've got Nero, who's the Caesar, when Paul's writing 1 Corinthians, Nero had a young boy named Sporus. He had him castrated, and then he married him in a full wedding, and Sporus lived with Nero as his wife. You read anything from the Roman historians Gibbon and Toynbee, and they write that homosexuality was one of the major contributors to the decline of the Roman Empire and the fall of Rome. Listen, just a few days ago, October 10th, did you catch this in the news? They're going to commemorate Harvey Milk on a stamp. Harvey Milk was the first openly gay politician in America. 
He was also widely known as a pederast. Do you know what a pederast is? It's a man who is sexually involved with a boy between 15 and 19 years old. His choice was Jack McKinley, who started at age 16. This guy is going on a stamp. He's being lifted up in our country as worthy of honor. Listen, the Roman world and Paul's day is not very different than our day today. And the Bible does speak to this issue. And we begin looking back again at Jude chapter 7. Let's get your Bibles. Let's get them open. Look what he's going to do. Jude's going to take you back to Genesis 19 to where the first incident of homosexuality occurs in the Bible. And you've got two angels. I introduced this a minute ago. Two angels who visit Sodom and Gomorrah. They're going there to, to as an investigative reporters, basically. They're going to see if... If the situation in Sodom and Gomorrah is as bad as God is hearing about. And while they're there, Genesis 19, verse 4 and 5, you see it on the screen. The men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man. Now listen, how many is that? Every single man in the towns. Young and old. All of them, the Bible is making sure you know, surrounded the house and they called to Lot. Lot took these men. He was sitting at the gate. He is a respected leader. You sit at the gate. You're an elder of the community. He sees these men coming. He bows down to worship them. He knows because he is spiritually enlightened. He knows that these are not just men. He brings them into their home. The angels say, no, we're going to sleep in the town square. Lot says, no, don't do that. I've got a feast waiting for you. And he brings them into his home. All the men surround the house and they begin to pressure Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. What's that word know mean? Well, all you need to do is go a little bit further in the account because Lot says, no, don't touch these men. Here's my two daughters who have never known a man. In other words, they've never had sexual relationships. They're virgins. The word no, eight out of ten times in Genesis, means sexual intercourse. But you've got those who are liberal scholars and here's how they twist this passage. Now listen, you need to know this. If you're going to contend for the faith, I'm teaching you how to contend. Here's what those liberal scholars are going to do. These men, they're going to say, just wanted to know these two visitors, meaning they wanted to give Middle Eastern hospitality to them and find out if they're spies. That's the liberal twisting of this passage. So the sin of Sodom, they say, is not homosexuality. It's the lack of God-honoring hospitality. Why would God destroy a people? Because of a lack of hospitality. Is that, is that consistent with God anywhere else in the Bible? Is it consistent of you? Does God deal and punish you severely when you are not as hospitable as you should be? 
There's another version, there's another reinterpretation that is starting to become popular. These men didn't want to have sex with men. They wanted to have sex with angels. They knew they were angels. But listen, they call out to Lot and they say, Lot, send these what? Men out to us. There's no hint that these men of Sodom and Gomorrah thought that these two were angels. So we've got Jude in verse 7 back in our text anticipating these arguments and he unpacks this incident. Here's what he wrote. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Now listen, he uses the phrase indulged in and the word pursued. Now if you're in the English Standard Version, that's what you're seeing. Indulged in means this. Now, you ready? It's on the screen. It means this. It means that people gave themselves up to something utterly and completely. There's no restraint anymore. That's what that Greek phrase means. Pursued means to leave something behind completely and go to something else. James and John left their father Zebedee, this Greek word, left their father Zebedee in the boat and they left and they followed Jesus. They utterly left their fishing career behind. They utterly embraced a new career following Jesus. That's the strength of this Greek word. Jude is saying that these men, the men of these cities, utterly gave themselves completely to sexual immorality and it took the expression of abandoning natural desires and instead going in the direction of unnatural desire. Now listen, what's that phrase, unnatural desire, mean? We're going to look at this a lot next week. But let me give you just a preview. You ready? Now you've got to know this. This is the one of the major ways that pro Gay theologians are twisting the scripture. You ready? You got to hear this. Unnatural desire is, this is what it means. It means you have a desire contrary to those that God ordained in creation. So any unnatural desire is a desire that goes opposite of the desires that God created. In the context of Sodom and Gomorrah, it means desires that now men had for men rather than men having for women. That's what it means, unnatural desire. Now that's going to be twisted, and next week I'm going to show you how they twist that. you got to be back here. And God's punishment of Sodom and Gomorrah, listen, is served as an example. You know what that word served means? This is fascinating. Let me give you two ways the Greeks used it. One was the Greeks would set a table with food and then await the guest's arrival. So you set it and then you wait for your guests to arrive. It was used in another way too, that when a body, when somebody died, they would prepare the body and they would let it lay in the home of the family until the pallbearers arrived to pick the body up to carry it to the cemetery. In both cases, it's something that God does beforehand as a warning, 
as a warning, just like John the Baptist said that God's got the axe at the, at the root of the tree. You know what that means? So listen, I cut wood. I've done it all my life since a little boy. When you lay an axe at the root of the tree, you're measuring the distance so that when you swing, you don't miss and hit your own leg or somebody near you. God is measuring that out here. He set the table. He has got the body laid out and ready. He's waiting for the guests. He's waiting for the pallbearers. It's a warning. You've got to repent. And if you don't, my judgment's coming. And they did not repent this, the men of the of Sodom and Gomorrah, though Lot asked them to. Now look at Lot preached to them. Listen, look at the screen, Genesis 19. I beg you, Lot said, I beg you, my brothers. He's pleading with them. Do not act so wickedly. He's saying what you're doing is sin. This is this is a horror in God's eyes. But they said, stand back. This fellow came to sojourn. He's not one of us. He has become, and he has become the judge. Your judge. Listen, this is what you're going to hear when you contend for the faith in the area of homosexuality. You're judging me. You're judging. Who made you the judge? And they turned their anger on him. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. What's that mean? Undergoing a punishment of eternal fire it means to be held under something in a sustaining, never-ending way. God will hold them under punishment for eternity. This is serious. Friends, if you call homosexual behavior sin, listen, I've had it. I've experienced this. And I've done it never flippantly, never angrily. Because if you know me at all, you know that I know what a sinner I am. I'm not interested in the judge's seat. And putting people in categories and choosing who I will give mercy and who I won't. I don't want that. And I don't want people doing that to me. But when I've talked to people about homosexuality biblically... Often, the response is the charge of homophobia, which I honestly find ridiculous. Do you charge people with phobias when they disagree with you on what appliances to get for your kitchen? On what job career paths you ought to take? Listen, homophobia is overused, but you will get that charge of homophobia. You will be called intolerant and you're in the, and the haters are going to fly your way. It's going to, it's going to happen. They're going to, they're going to call you haters. But the gospel is good news to homosexuals. Did you hear that? Listen, if you're presenting the good news in a way full of hate, then you don't know the gospel. And when a gay person, and you have the privilege of that gay person, God sending them into your life, and you get to respond to that person with the gospel, the good news of God's favor that can be for them through Christ, then that is sweetness to them. And the Apostle Paul said of idolaters, he said of adulterers, swindlers, as well as homosexuals, look what he said, look on the screen, and such were some of you. 
Such were some of you. You used to be these. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You know what? You know what liberal scholars who are gay affirming say of the Apostle Paul in this passage? You ready? I'm, I'm giving you a way to contend lovingly. They're going to tell you Paul was a repressed homosexual. He wasn't married. He was repressed. And when you repress something, you usually attack those who do what you wish you could do, but you can't. And he's writing against his own desires. Listen, the truth is Paul viewed himself as a chief of sinners who had met the king of glory, Jesus, who had died for Paul's sins and for all sinners who will come to him in faith. That's the reality. Paul is is presenting the good news to these people saying, you can be what you weren't. What you were, you can come out of and you can have freedom through Christ. Let me, let me end with just this. I'm almost done. I, I want to drive this into my mind. I want to drive it into yours. You ready? Now listen, you got to hear this. All sin. All sin renders a person deserving of hell. But thank God who made a way that we do not have to experience the punishment of eternal fire. If you have faith, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, you can be forgiven of anything and you can have life. And sinners can live holy lives and thieves can no longer steal and liars become truth tellers and gay men and gay women can live with holy natural desires. That's the truth of the gospel. But I want to say this to you, my brothers and sisters, because I want this church to be a church that can love gay people. The ground at the foot of the cross is absolutely perfectly level. Do you know that? And if there was a gay man right now sitting in these pews and next to that man was a couple who are engaged to be married, but they're having sex with each other. Listen, that gay man is no better or worse than that couple. And vice versa. The gospel levels them. And to both of them, the gospel meets and says there's a better way and God can provide that better way through Jesus Christ. Listen, if you are struggling with gay desires or have acted on them. Listen, I want you to hear me. We love you. And we're learning to love you better. More importantly than that, God loves you and has freedom and forgiveness for you. And he can give you the power to live a life of purity. If you've never experienced, listen, if you've never experienced gay desires... then let me encourage you, don't take homosexuality and separate it from the rest of the sins and bring it to a deeper, more horrible level. Don't do that because the Bible won't let you. 
Don't categorize, don't judge, don't withhold love and mercy from those who are gay. Be loving enough that they will be able to hopefully hear you share the good news of the gospel. That homosexuality is never, ever God's design or hope. And maybe, just maybe, they might experience freedom. Let me close with this. I have a friend, two, two guys that are here tonight. Who know a guy better than I do. Who's gay. Now let me, let me just, I don't know too much of the background, but let me just lift it up. You know what they've done? They've actually sat down and they've talked to him. And they've loved him. I'm gonna quote them. You ready? I'm gonna quote them. He's one of the most loving persons I've ever met. This gay person. They're loving him. And they're holding out for him hope. They've invited him to church. And they want to win him to a new understanding that a Christian who follows Jesus, who sees through the filter of the gospel, does not condemn, does not judge, does not categorize, but loves and sees people who are in need of mercy or people who've received mercy. That's the way the gospel works. That's the way we need to work. So what do you think of homosexuality, biblically? And are you willing this week to pray, God, if you want to bring somebody in my life who's gay, I'm ready. And I want you to help me love them and show them mercy and speak the truth of the gospel. Amen.